0: And good morning. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 as we continue going through Psalms throughout this summer. And as we uh begin, I just wonder, don't feel like you have to raise your hand, but have you ever done anything wrong? <laughs> have you ever sinned? Right. Okay, good. So I think we're all on the same page. We understand that We're sinners. We've done things wrong that we know we shouldn't do and the like. Uh, But I then wonder, how do you feel afterward? Have you ever thought about how God feels about your sin? Do you ever wonder or feel guilty or feel shame when you understand that, oh, God was there in the moment that I sinned? You know, someone once said there would be a lot less sinning if men truly understood that their offenses would reach heaven, right? And I think that's true. We just usually don't process through God being present in our sin. But this morning, we're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about repentance as we look at Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is David writing in response to his sin, To his sin being pointed out by God through Nathan the prophet with Bathsheba as he lusted, committed adultery, tried to cover it up, lied, tried to cover it up, eventually led to the murder of Uriah. And his sin gets pointed out and, and he realizes his own heart of sin. And he pens this psalm in response to that. And so this morning we're going to focus less on what repentance is and more about why we should repent. About why it's important in the life of the believer in the one who wants to follow God to practice repentance in their life. Because that's what I read when I read this psalm. I don't read some theological exposition of, here's what repentance is. It's not really a how-to guide uh, when it comes to repentance. It's David pouring out his heart in repentance. And so for us, we're going to look at three reasons why we should repent as well. So with that in mind, and hopefully your Bible's open to Psalm 51, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we need you this morning. We need you to open our hearts, open our minds to your word. Lord, I pray that you give clarity of thought and clarity of voice as we go through this and that we would um, be open to what you might have for us this morning, that we would be challenged by your word and that we would be changed by it. Lord, be with us as we continue to worship you as we open the word together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The first thing we'll see as we go through this psalm is that repentance transforms our character. If you look here in the first couple verses of Psalm 51, we see David say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These two verses point out a couple of things, but the first thing that I notice is the fact that David's desire is to be godly. That's what he's pleading for. This isn't um, just um, someone who's just saying routine things. No, he's pleading with God. He wants to be godly. And I think what we're seeing here at the core of repentance is the desire to change. And don't gloss over that thought. The core of repentance is the desire to change. It's a desire not only to stop sinning, but to change, to be transformed, to be more and more like Christ. And I'm afraid that very often we just kind of play lip service to this idea of repentance. And maybe when we sin or we feel guilty or we feel ashamed about something we've done, we kind of have a formula that we go to and it sounds something like this. God, I sinned. God, please forgive me for my sins. God, thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Amen. But here's the thing. That's not repentance. See, that's just rote language. That's just me trying to go through a formula. That doesn't lead anywhere, and it certainly doesn't lead to transformation. Because I think what's happening there is we're not going to God to change us, to transform us. We're going to God so that we might feel better. Because really we're just dealing with the feelings of guilt and shame. And so we know, well, I did something wrong, so I'll go to God and that will make God happy. And in turn, I'll be happy. And so what we're really doing is we're just going to God and saying, God, please forgive me. Because we think that is what, God, what will make God happy. And in turn, it makes us happy. That's not repentance. So where we have to, what we have to ask ourselves before we get to this concept or idea of repentance, we have to ask ourselves, do we really want to change? Do we desire transformation? You know, in John chapter 5, we see the story of Jesus and his disciples coming up to the pool of Bethsaida. And he's at the pool and we, we find out that Jesus comes up to this man who's been, um, lame for 38 years. He hasn't been able to walk, and he's sitting by this pool, and for 38 years, he's seen people go down into the pool and be healed, and Jesus comes up to him, and do you know what Jesus says? It's in verse 6 of chapter 5 of John. He says, It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What do you mean, do you want to be healed? This is a guy that's been sitting there for 38 years, can't walk. Jesus, that's kind of a silly question, isn't it? I mean, do you want to be healed? Of course the guy wants to be healed. He wants to be able to walk. He's been sitting here for 38 years, Jesus. You know that he's been sitting here for a long time. Why would you even ask such a silly question? But if you think about it, it may not be that silly of a question after all. You see, if that man suddenly can walk, if that man is healed, now he's got a new level of responsibility. Now he's got a new level of accountability. You start to realize that it will probably actually be easier for that man to just stay paralyzed, to just sit there, to rely on others to come care for him, bring him food, care for whatever needs he might have because, after all, he's been there for a long time. I'm sure people know him. And you realize, wow, this guy's whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that he can't walk and he's been laying here and he can't get down into the pool. And if he says, yes, I want to be healed, he's no longer going to be the guy that has been sitting there for 38, 39, 40 years. He will be the guy that Jesus healed and that means probably he's going to have to go get a job he's going to have to be faced with decisions about what do I do with my life and and do I show compassion to other people who are less fortunate than me so Jesus asked him do you want to be healed and then he heals the man but the question remains for us do you want change do you want your character, your integrity, your person to be transformed by God? Now I wonder how many times the answer is really no. I don't really want to change. And so the empty prayers go up to heaven and the sinful behavior, the sinful habit continues. Why? Well, if because if we're honest, sin is appealing a lot of times. We like it. We succumb to it. Sin is in our nature, so we let it happen. Sin's easy, and we're just lazy. So, we continue to sit in our sin because we really don't want Transformation. If that lame man had said, no, Jesus, you know what? I'm pretty good sitting here by the pool. Been doing it for a while. I'm good here. He would say, what? You're crazy. What do you mean you wouldn't take advantage of the opportunity for Jesus to heal you? You could walk. See, that's nuts. Because they see it all the time. Because Jesus is offering freedom from sin. Jesus is offering life transformation through repentance and a lot of times people are saying "Well, eh, i don't really need change I'm, I'm kind of comfortable in this sin and you know sometimes it's sexually nice it makes me feel good i'm good why don't we think that's crazy in our own life we should thankfully that's not the picture we see here of david You see, David has a desire to change. David has a desire to be godly, to be transformed. And David understands his sin. Look with me at the next few verses, starting with verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, David's just being honest. David's saying, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I continue to sin. And it's a problem. And in these couple of verses, we see a few different things about sin. In verse 3, I notice that sin is pervasive. It haunted David. He couldn't get it out of his mind. My sin is ever before me, he says. You know, our culture tries to play up sin And it seems to be appealing. And there's not a lot of people that will promote some of the consequences to sin. And the easiest example that I can think of relates to alcohol. right? How many times in movies or TV shows or even commercials do we see this idea of of people hanging out, going to parties, having fun, right? And, And we play it out. We have handsome guys and beautiful women and everyone's just having a good time. It's not often, actually, I can't think of one, beer commercial where they're highlighting the consequences of drinking that goes out of control. That's not very appealing. But you see, that that's pervasive. 86% of homicides were carried out under the influence of alcohol. 60% of sexual abuse cases reported involved alcohol. of assaults involve alcohol. 13% of cases of child abuse were caused by excessive alcohol consumption. And 70% of cases that involved child abuse, the abuser was reported to have problems with drug or alcohol abuse. Now, this isn't a lecture about you shouldn't drink alcohol or, or any of that. But what it is, is a prime example of how our culture wants to highlight and promote sin and and ignore and hide consequences. But this doesn't just happen with the abuse of alcohol. Every sin carries consequence. And it may vary and it may look different, but every sin carries consequences. And David's conscience wouldn't let him rest because of the sins that he committed. And then you look at verse 4 again, and you see that sin deserves judgment. And we looked at that last week, and and we know that David knew how God feels about sin and sinners. And what he's saying in verse 4 is, God, I know I'm a sinner, and you are perfectly just to do whatever you want with me. You are the judge. I've sinned against you. And whatever punishment you see fit, I'm going to take. And then if you look at verse 5, he talks about he was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother did conceive me. And he's not trying to shift blame. He's not saying, "Well, well, God, it's my mom's fault. It's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is saying sin is more than just bad choices. Sin is more than me just doing a couple wrong things. Sin is inherent in me. Sin has infected me. It goes down to my core. And if I don't get this right, and if you don't fix this in me, I'm going to continue to sin because it's inherent in who I am. It's in my nature. So what does David do? David relies on God. The only thing he can do we looked at verse 1. Have mercy on me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. And then verse 6. He continues. Purge me with hyssop. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. These verses are showing us that not only does David have a desire to be godly, but he's relying on God to do the work understanding that his sin left him with only one recourse, and that's just to throw himself at the mercy of God. He asked God to cleanse him, God to purge the sin, God to wash him clean. He continues in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, these verses, is not just, "Oh God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. These verses are, God, completely change who I am. Completely change me and make me more like you. Make me acceptable in your sight. Remake me. David's is depending on God to give him a new heart. Because he understands that otherwise he will fall right back into the same sins that got him in this place to begin with. David's desire was to be godly. And so the question comes back to us. Who do you want to be? What's your inner desire? I hope you understand that if you're a Christian, our desire ought to be to be godly. And so we understand that repentance is a powerful way that he's going to use to transform our character. And as we continue through the psalm, we also see that repentance deepens our intimacy with God. You look back at verse 10. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and hold me with a willing spirit. You remember verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in Your sight. What David is focused on is the damaged relationship, the barrier that has now been created between him and God. David's not as much focused on the rules that he has broken, but the relationship that was broken. This psalm is in response to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he doesn't even mention them. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness or care or concern for Bathsheba or Uriah, even though they're the ones that were most affected by his sin. You know, he doesn't even pray for deliverance from lust or sexual sin or lying. Why doesn't he mention any of those things in this repentant psalm? Well, I think it's because he understands right living flows out of a right relationship. Look at what David is asking for. He's asking for a new heart, for a right spirit, for intimate fellowship, for joy in a sense of God's presence. He's asking for deeper intimacy with God. And that's not to diminish the specific sins that he committed or the specific people that he hurt and offended in his sins. But it's rather pointing out and focusing on the fact that sin is just a symptom of the brokenness inside of relationship between Him and God. And the remedy for that is not by keeping more rules, but the remedy is found by going deeper in our relationship with God. And this is why I think it's important for us to understand this, this concept of repentance. One of the worst ways you can try to stop sinning is to try to stop sinning. And so what I mean with that is if sin is over here in this general area, and I'm trying to get out of sin, but I just keep focusing on the sin that I keep doing, I'm never leaving this area. So if I'm struggling with lying, I just... I tell a lie, I'm like, oh man, I'm focused on my sin, I I lied, I failed again, I failed again. Well, guess what? You're always going to fail at something. You're always going to be consumed with the sin that is in you, because it's pervasive. So instead of me just trying to focus on my sin to get out of sin, I want to focus on something else. And what David is showing us is, if sin is over here and Jesus is over there, The best way for me to get out of this sin over here is going to be to begin looking at Jesus over here. I want to start putting my focus on who Jesus is, on who God is, on who God calls me to be. And as I focus on who Jesus is, on who God is, on the things, on His holiness, on His grace, on His mercy, on His love, as I start focusing on these things, He starts to change me. Because I start to be drawn and desire the things of God. Because He's transforming me. And so as I walk from sin, I'm walking towards Christ. And the closer and deeper I get in my relationship with Christ, the farther I go from sin. And sin's always going to be there. And I'm always going to have to deal with sin. And I might have a glance back, but I'm going to remember who Jesus is and who God is. And that's going to keep me focused and centered over here. And if I will focus on my relationship with God, I don't have to focus on keeping all these rules. So if I focus on just keeping rules, if I focus on all the things I fail, man, that's a recipe for disaster because I'm going to keep failing. And that's just going to put me right back where I started in a sense of guilt and shame. And it's just this never-ending cycle because I'm never going to be good enough. So instead of trying to be good enough and trying to work my way out of my sin, I'm going to focus on relationship. I'm going to focus on God, on who He is and who He's calling me to be. And so this is where the psalm intersects with all of our lives and, and, and speaks to every person in here. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of your Christianity in your walk, but I do know this. You have, are presently, and will continue to struggle with sin. I don't know what that sin will be or what you are prone to. Maybe it's the things of David. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's murder. I hope not. But maybe it's gossip and maybe it's pride and maybe it's some of these other things that we think are more manageable or more respectable. But guess what? The solution starts in the same place for all of these things. And it's not in trying to sin less, but it's trying to be more like Christ. And understanding that the trying and the effort isn't based on me is found in the relationship that I have with Jesus. There may be different things and approaches in our lives that we need to attack when dealing with sin, but I can tell you where it all starts, whether it's murder or gossip. It all starts with a desire to change and a desire to go deeper in your relationship with Christ. Our job, our need, is to plead with God, to work in our hearts, and so that as God works in our hearts, it changes our outward actions. So as we follow Christ, we sin less, because we're becoming more and more consumed with who he is, with his heart, with his spirit, and with his joy. He highlights this again, uh, starting in verse 15. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but I wonder why is David so emotional about this? Why doesn't he just go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and then get good with God again? Right, isn't what that that's what the whole sacrificial system is, right? Oh, I sin, God, I need to be cleansed, and my sin needs to be atoned for. I can't do it myself, so I'm gonna go to the temple, you know, offer whatever you told me to offer, and then then I'll be good, and, and then I'm good, and then we can walk together. Isn't that what the sacrificial system is for? I say not exactly, because do you know what the prescribed sacrifice is for lying? Or do you know what the prescribed sacrifice is for committing adultery or committing murder? Because it's actually all the same. There isn't one. There is no sacrifice for intentional sin. This comes out in Numbers chapter 15 and and God is giving the ceremonial law about the people coming to God, being cleansed through the atonement of blood, through the sacrificial system. And so Numbers fifteen twenty eight says, And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. But then it talks about the person who sins intentionally. For the person who does anything with a high hand, that means intentionally, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Well, wait a minute. You mean there's no sacrifice for lying or adultery or murder? That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, then how is someone supposed to get right with God? They can't. There's no sacrifice that they can bring. There's no animal that will cover that sin. Well, wait. What does that mean for someone who wants to be godly and then commits an intentional sin? Because if you've been paying attention, this is David. Lying, adultery, murder, pretty intentional. But then if you think about it, that applies to pretty much everyone in this room if you're human. We've all committed intentional sin, so what are we supposed to do if there's no sacrifice that we can offer, if there's no temple that we can go to and say, God, here, accept my sacrifice. There's no provision for that. It goes back to doing the only thing that we can do, and that's nothing in of ourselves. All we can do is plead for the mercy and grace of God. That's it. There's no prescription for fixing intentional sin other than... You deserve to be punished. God is just in judging you. And you fall down at his feet for mercy. But David does talk about a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, there's nothing in the, in the temple system, the ceremonial law, that someone could, so could come and make right with God. So what did they have to do? They had to repent. They had to come to God with a broken and contrite heart. What is that? What does that look like for you and me? What's a broken and contrite heart? As I looked into this and read about this. The idea, if you look at verse 8, it talks about how God had crushed the bones. That's how he, David felt. God crushed the bones. And he was asking for them to feel joy again. And I was thinking about this concept of God crushing our hearts for a purpose. And so I got on YouTube and I started looking up um, the process of um, glass being recycled. It was interesting because the first thing that you do if you want to recycle glass is break it, is crush it, shatter it into a million pieces. And then it gets broken and crushed, and then it gets refined. It gets sorted, and it gets washed, and it gets cleaned. And then an aggregate is added into it. So there's sand and salt and minerals. And they put it in with this broken and crushed pieces of glass. And they put it all into the fire. And they heat it way up. And it all gets melted together. And then when it's in its molten state, the machines or the people hand um, create or hand blow um, new pieces of glass. So that when it comes out of the fire, it's this usable, beautiful piece of glass. That started as a million little pieces. And I'm sure it's not a perfect illustration, but my mind just goes to this picture of this is what God does with our broken and contrite hearts. That sometimes the weight of sin and the guilt that we bear breaks and crushes our heart into pieces. And God takes those pieces and He washes us and He cleanses us And then He takes His mercy and His grace and and His love and He puts it all in and He puts it into the fire and as as we're in the fire and our hearts are going through the fire, He takes the pieces and He puts them back together and He not only puts it back together, He molds them and makes them into a piece that is more beautiful and more usable for His purpose and for His glory. And I can see God working in our hearts the same way this glass goes through this process. And the interesting thing about glass is it's 100% recyclable. And so it can be recycled over and over and over again. And sometimes when a, when a piece of glass goes through, it comes out and there's an imperfection in it. And so you know what they do? They just... Smash it into pieces again, and the whole thing starts over again. And I just see this as a a picture of our hearts as we we sin and we know there's sin and we're broken by sin and we're broken by guilt, but we lay it before God and say, God, here's the pieces of my heart. Take them. I need your love. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Use these broken pieces and make something out of it. Fix my heart. Make it whole. Use me for your purpose. And he does every time. He does. And that's the shocking part of God's grace, that He takes the broken pieces and He takes what's left of our hearts and He adds Himself to it so that we can be used for His purpose and for His glory. Don't be discouraged this morning thinking that your sin or your guilt or your bad decisions or your habit or your past is a barrier for God to use you. That's a lie. But don't be fooled into thinking that God will use you without a broken and contrite heart. So repentance, it it transforms our character. It, It deepens our intimacy with God. But repentance also empowers our witness to others. It affects our testimony. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. How does repentance empower my witness? Well, I hope, if you've been around for these past two weeks or just this morning, that it's been clear, if nothing else, that sin hinders your relationship with God. And if sin in your life hinders your relationship with God, it surely hinders your relationship with others. And that applies to people inside and outside the church. You know, one of the greatest things about the church is the ability to come together in community. So we can support each other, encourage one another, and pray for one another, and hold each other accountable. But what happens when the people in the community and the people in the church have sin in them? It hurts the body. It hurts the whole thing. And so when I sin, when I have sin in me that's unrepentant, unconfessed, I'm not only hurting myself, my own walk with the Lord, I'm also damaging relationships within the church. How am I supposed to encourage someone in a sin that they're dealing with if I have unconfessed sin in my own life? How am I supposed to give someone godly wisdom about an issue if I have hidden sin over here? How can I truly come into worship and enjoy worship with a body of believers if I know I myself am not right with God. See, as we witness to one another within the body, we need to understand and practice repentance. It also affects our witness outside of the church. You see, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I'm going to teach people about God and about His glory and about what He wants for your life. But I can think nothing... What will cause people to stop listening to you? I can think of nothing more damaging to the church than hypocrisy. And when we have unrepentant hearts... We're not applying this to ourselves. We've become hypocrites. Hypocrisy doesn't happen because of sin. Hypocrisy happens because of hidden and unrepentant sin. And that's the benefit of repentance. Repentance doesn't make us perfect. That's the whole point. We acknowledge and admit that we are not perfect. And that's what the world needs to see and hear. I am not perfect, but I go to the one who is. Repentance forces us to recognize our own sinfulness, our own need for God to intervene into our own lives, and then helps us as we witness and preach the gospel through our words and our actions and our attitudes for the world to see. And then as David ends the psalm, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is just a call for God to be glorified. But it's not just a call for, for God to be glorified in his temple, in his rightful place but it's for his people to come together and worship him the way they ought to in community together. And the only way that that happens is if we as individuals understand how our own spiritual health affects the whole world. Body. That we would understand that God is most pleased and honored and glorified when His people together can join together and together have pure hearts, to have clean hearts, together that we come together, that we sing praise to Him, we come together and we give glory to Him together as His people. It begins with repentance. Repentance transforms our character. It deepens our intimacy with Christ. And it empowers our witness to others. So that we can say together, Lord, in my life, be glorified. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we need you. We're thankful that we don't have to be a perfect people because we're not, and you know it. But what you ask of us is to be broken, is to be humble, is for us to allow you to do the work in us. So I pray that would be our heart, that we would come to you with a desire to be more like you. That we wouldn't focus on necessarily all the wrong things that we were doing, but that we would focus on the relationship that you have called us to, a relationship of love and joy and peace. That we would be able to come together as a church body and sing praise that is both honoring and glorifying to your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.